The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. Good morning, everyone. I have the privilege today of speaking of another overcomer. And this whole summer, we've been talking about overcomers. You've heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard about Gideon and Esther and David and Jonah. Today, we're going to be talking, as Kevin said, about the walls of Jericho and the wonderful heart of Joshua, okay? He definitely was an overcomer. I took this picture a couple weeks ago when we were up in Northumbria, and I'm amazed at how many people from England have never been up north. It is gorgeous up there, and the land is covered with castles all over the place. Some are in ruins, some are still standing, um, but this castle is nearly intact. I mean, it's, it's perfect. Look at it up there. It's just formidable. It's still there. Every straight edge is there. It doesn't seem like it was ever even in battle. But when we talk about Jericho, we have to realize that these people weren't just facing, the Israelites weren't just facing a city. They were facing a fortress. This was a defensive fortress. And it was probably just as intimidating as Bamborough Castle would be to you today. If you stood out there, there's no way you're going to blow a horn and those walls are going to fall down. In your mind, right? Think about it. Imagine yourself in front of Bamborough Castle. And you're going to blow that trumpet. Do you expect anything to happen? Nothing at all. Yet, today I'm going to tell you that even archaeology is now saying today that what happened in Jericho is fact. It's historical record. And I'm going to be quoting to you from the bastion of conservative thought, no, um, the New York Times in the 1990s, where they actually say that there is impressive evidence that what they found in, up to the 1990s in Jericho points to the biblical narrative being correct. Okay? So it's amazing. When we watch this clip today, don't think this is just another kid's cartoon. This is history. And the wonderful thing about our faith is that our book, our Bible, has been covered, has covered years and years of history. It makes it also more... Um, attackable, if you will, that's a terrible word, more people can attack it because it's based on history. And they can say, oh, this didn't happen, that didn't happen, whatever. But our book has proven the goodness of our God over the length of generations. So we can look to it because it strengthens us. It causes us to persevere. And that's why we're covering this great cloud of witnesses, these overcomers. All right. Now, as we jump into this message, all of you know, well, most of you know, and in fact, once again, probably if we went on the high street, most people have heard of Jericho and the fall of the, of the walls. But the story isn't just about those seven days. The story goes back a lot further. And I want to jump back 40 years. Because in Numbers 13, 14, and 15, what happens in those chapters is God has redeemed his people from the land of Egypt. They have seen natural miracles, phenomenal things. They have seen darkness come over the land that didn't come over the land of Goshen. They heard in the night the death of every firstborn child. 
They heard the wailing and the crying of mothers and fathers. And yet, that same cloud of death never came over their own houses. They had these people say, take our gold, take our silver, take, our, take all our goods, take it with you. Just go. Just go. They saw amazing things happen. And yet, God takes them to the edge of the promised land where God says, the land flows with milk and honey. And just a tidbit, archaeologists have found in the city of Jerusalem, not just a couple beehives, but a whole production on a, on a commercial level of beehives. So God is actually accurate in his, in his words. A land flowing with milk and honey. This was um, God's promise to them, and he was accurate. But here they are, standing on the edge of the promised land, and they send in 12 spies. And you probably know this story, too, in Numbers, that the 12 spies came back. They saw great fruit. They saw wonderful things. It was a good land, they said. But 10 of them said, no, we felt like grasshoppers. Let me read this to you. In Numbers 13, verses 30 through 35. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw there were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. Wow. So they come to this place, and they see obstacles bigger than they think they can handle. Yet they've seen God do far more amazing things. You know, these are the people who stood on the edge of the, the Red Sea when there was an army behind them. And they watched all night as the sea parts. I've often thought, God set it up so beautifully. He put an army behind them, and he puts the Red Sea in front of them. So they have no time to establish a shadow government. There's no opportunity for them to get a committee together and say, hey, let's consider another path. There's no other option. They got an army on one side that wants to kill them. And they've got a Red Sea parting. There was no chance for them to argue. Well, here the bad report comes back. And once again, the shadow government comes up. Oh, 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 oh. Great idea, Caleb. Why don't you get us all killed? Okay? And they begin to murmur and complain, and this shadow government begins to speak up and said, nope, we're not going with God. He's the head of our nation, but we're not going with him. And, you know, we think of these people as being wicked. But really, what they were interested in is self-preservation. They had forgotten every good thing God had done. They'd forgotten all the provisions. And they weren't wicked like we would call wicked today. They weren't just doing nasty, wicked things. They just chose not to follow God because they wanted to protect themselves. As you know, the story goes on number 14. They do officially reject God, and they reject his plans. And then God speaks to them and says, you know what? I can't take you in. This whole generation can't go in, except Caleb and Joshua, the two faithful ones. And they say, oh, this isn't good. 
And that we were going to go and take the land. And Moses says, no, 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 I gave you other directions now. God gave us other directions. We're not going in. Oh, yes, we are. Shadow government. They go in, they get pummeled, and they have to run back to, to the Israelites. And for 40 years, they have to march in the desert, waiting for their next opportunity. But look at Numbers 15 with me. This is the beautiful thing about God. And as you read the word of God, you begin to see things that just are beautiful, that speak of who our God is, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy. Numbers 15, 1 through 2. Then the Lord told Moses, this is after not just one rebellion, but two rebellions, which even in some ways, probably the defeat of these Israelites embarrassed God in some way. You know, like, oh, see, God, he maybe was able to conquer the Egyptians, but he's not coming in the promised land. In 40 years, that story had to stand. 40 years. They weren't big enough to handle the sons of Anak. They were just grasshoppers in their own eyes. But Numbers 15 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you finally settle in the land that I am giving you. Wow. After all this, God's promise still stands. His hope for the nation still stands. And he says so sweetly, when this day finally does come, because it ain't happening today, when it does happen, and I give it to you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know, there's some, so many truths in here. And regrettably, I've had so much time to study on this message that I've got a thousand points to make, but I'm going to try to pare it down. But let me move ahead. So, that's the beginning of the story I want to tell today. And fast forward 40 years ahead, we find this. In the book of Joshua, the first chapter opens up, be strong and courageous, Joshua. Be strong and courageous and do what I say. What we have waiting on the brink of the Jordan is a completely different people. They didn't see quite all the miracles that the, that the earlier Israelites had seen when they rejected him, but they did see some other things. They saw 40 years in the wilderness, their sandals didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't develop any holes. They saw water come from a rock in the middle of the desert. And most notably, every single morning, every single morning, except on the Sabbath, manna fell from heaven, and they ate it. You know what's neat about the manna? I don't hear it talked about a lot, but God told them, okay, you get your portion for each day, but don't, do not store up for the next day. Do not. It's human nature again to store up for the next day. You don't want to rely on somebody else. You don't want to, what if it doesn't happen? What if the weather's bad? What if this? What if that? Do not store up for the next day. So what happens? Some of the families think, I know better than these people. They think they got faith. I got brains, okay? <laughs> I'm storing up manna for the next day because my kids aren't going hungry. And then they open up their treasure trove of goodness the next day. And what do they find? Worms and mold and just nastiness. Every time they did that, 
there was a testimony of who God was. Can you imagine every Sabbath, there was no manna on the ground, but on the day before they could store up that day? I mean, that's God. You get six days of manna, then on our Sabbath it disappears, and we can only store up on one day? They witnessed the kindness, the mercy, the provision of God, but they also witnessed his absolute power to override all natural sources. They knew he was God. He was powerful. He was to be listened to. He was to be feared and honored. And so, standing at the brink of the Jordan is a completely different people. They know their God has good intentions, but they know they must obey him too. And so, in the beginning of Joshua, I'm going to move through this quickly. Spies are set in chapter 2. And God sets them up with a lady who's a prostitute in the city who actually protects them and takes care of them. Lets them out the window by a red rope so that they can flee into safety. She sets everything up risking her own life. God puts them in her path. I'm going to tell you a little bit of... I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Rahab because Rahab plays an important part in the story, especially in archaeology. It's amazing what they have found. I will stand as still as I possibly can. Joshua 3. God tells Joshua again, be strong and courageous. You're going to pass over the Jordan River. You know what I noticed in here? They obeyed God completely. Even though the scripture says it's the spring harvest time. And the rivers overflow its bank. So God chose the very worst time for the Israelites to pass over. When the obstacles seemed the greatest. When the chance for a shadow government to rise up was at its best. But nobody did. Nobody said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh No, let's rethink this. No, this is a heart of a people that say, no, we need to obey this God. He knows how to rot manna. He knows how to control things that we know aren't human. There's a real God here. So they go through the Jordan in the flood season. The water piles up on one side. The water does on the other side. And they pick 12 stones out from the middle and mark the land, as God told them, to say, hey, remember those stones they will remind you that I caused this miracle to happen, that these seeds really did part, and this is a place you crossed. But you know what else is in there? Joshua also set up another memorial, not commanded by God, but it was planted in the middle of the Jordan. And you wonder, why God? Why did he do this? It wasn't a lack of faith. But I think, and this is just my own meditation on it, every time the waters went low, in the Jordan, peeking above the top of the water. That's the stone. It really, they did pass there. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then the waters would rise again. And every so often, people, that's the stone, son. That's the exact place that the Ark of the Covenant stood. That's where my foot passed over. Joshua 5. The Israelites do two things that once again show us that they had a different heart. They get to this land. Do you know what the first two things they are? Do One, they reaffirm their covenant by circumcision of all the males that hadn't been circumcised in the wilderness. They set their hearts to obey God. 
they set themselves back in position. And then secondly, they hold the Passover as commanded by God. These are people whose hearts have been shifted into obedience, knowing the provision and goodness of God would go with them. So, here we come. I've told the long bit. Now we're at the final seven days, okay? The big days that you all know is Jericho. So here they are. They pass through the Jordan. They see miracles. And the land is trembling before them. God tells Joshua with a meeting with the commander of the Lord of hosts and says, this is what you're supposed to do. March around the city six times. Then on the seventh day, you march around at seven and then all the people are to shout at the long blast of the ram's horn. And what do they do? They obey. This site of Jericho is historic. In fact, it's there to this day. If you go to Israel, you can see it. Excavations began on Jericho as, late, or as early as 1800s and carry on to today. In the 1930s, it just looked like a mound of dirt, though. But that is that mound, it was just a mound of like dirt. It's called Tel El Sultan or Tel El Jericho. But the excavations have been going on there for years. In the 1950s, a lady by the name of Kathleen Kenyon went there and she found amazing evidence in this city. And I'm going to read off some of them. Some were found by other archaeologists as well. One, it's clear that this city was well fortified. The walls at the bottom were at least six feet across. The walls themselves went up at least probably 40 to 46 feet. Two, and this is interesting, they found, and every archaeologist, as, as they go around the wall, they find that the walls were leveled and then burned. The falling of the walls happened first, and then they were burned, which is important because frequently, more frequently, cities were burned and then they were leveled in the process after they were weakened. This city most notably, fell and then burned. Secondly, part of the outer wall on the north still remains today. The whole wall fell except for one section on the north end. If you look at this, this is that part of the wall that still is up there. And there is evidence that this is the poor part of the city. This is the poorer part. Less wealthy things, I guess, were found in the rubble. And... There were literally houses built into the outer wall there. Just like the biblical story tells us that Rahab's house was intact. A residential house on the north end or on the wall. It was on the north side is what archaeologists have found. Next, most notable was that underneath the rubble, there are hundreds and hundreds of jars of wheat of grain stored in big pots. And you think, well, what's the big deal there? One, it shows us that in the biblical account, God said, do not plunder the city, except for the metals and the golds and the precious things. Do not take anything for you, not of the animals, not the grain, not anything. And grain in that time was a bartering tool. You used it as a, it was wealth. That was like almost like cash. And for it not to be taken before the city was destroyed, really shows that this is unusual, that this is not a typical invasion. Any invading army would have taken it. Um, and this shows us clearly that the people of Israel obeyed God, that there were jars and jars full of grain. 
also it points out that it happened exactly in the time frame that God told us. So the attack happened just after the harvest. It also shows that the inhabitants didn't have time to flee with their food. It shows that the siege was short because very little of it was eaten. And two, or last of all, as I said before, that the city was not plundered, that the Israelites obeyed God in this. And isn't it amazing that God had them leave it there? And today it remains as evidence, not only that they obeyed God, but that it happened at the right season. It happened that the people didn't have a long time in, inside the siege. It just, God asked them not to plunder the city. Why? It didn't make human sense. Why part through the Red Sea or the Jordan River when it's at its fullest when it's flooding why attack a land full of giants that are that have people bigger than you just obey he knows how to protect the manna from rotting he knows what is right and what is wrong so today if you go to Jericho they have found so much evidence now in Kathleen Kenyon's day actually she was Dame Kathleen Kenyon she, after seeing all the evidence before her in that time with what they had found up to that date, she said, well, this is nice evidence, but I really don't think Jericho was even there when the Israelites came in. She came to the assumption, because of lack of Cypriot pottery, and, and that's more of a story if you want to know, ask me later, but because of the lack of a certain type of pottery, she determined that it couldn't have been the Israelites who knocked down this, this wall. It must have been destroyed by a foreign army before this by about 150 years. No evidence of it, no anything else, but there was no Cypriot pottery. So, for years, this was the standard of truth in the world of archaeology. Everybody felt that the Bible, biblical story was not credible. The Israelites really just passed through the land and Jericho had already been destroyed. However, today... After those 40 years where that assumption that ruled archaeology, and some people probably still believe it, that assumption was like an obstacle to faith for some. It was another thing that said, see the Bible, you can't rely on it. Listen to the New York Times here in the 1990s when more of this evidence has come to light. After years of doubt among archaeologists, okay, by, by the way, once again, this, the title of this article is called Believers Score Big in the Battle of the Battle of Jericho. This was a big victory for those who believe that the Bible's true. It's from the New York Times, February 22nd, 1990. After years of doubt among archaeologists, a new analysis of excavation has yielded, pay attention, a wide range of evidence supporting the biblical account about the fall of Jericho. It may well be true in the words of the old spiritual, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came a tumbling down. Don't you like the New York Times quoting good stuff? It goes on. A study of the ceramic remnants, royal scarabs, carbon-14 dating, and, get this, evidence of seismic activity in the area at this time. Something shook this building. In the region, and even some ruins of tumbled walls produced what is being called, quote unquote, impressive evidence that the fortified city 
was destroyed in the late Bronze Age of about 1400. Exactly what the Bible said. It's the correct time event. It wasn't in 1550. It was in 1400. It goes on. The prevailing view among archaeologists has been that the city was destroyed 150 years earlier and thus did not exist at the time of the Israelite invasion, which is believed to have occurred no earlier than 1400 B.C. Quote, when we compare the archaeological evidence at Jericho with the biblical narrative describing the Israelite destruction of Jericho, we find a quite remarkable agreement. Dr. Bryant Wood, an archaeologist at the University of Toronto. Can you just clap for God? <laughs> After years of doubt, this other obstacle came, came down. The Bible, in this case, is once again credible and reliable. It's a document you can base your faith on. That's my first point. But can you imagine, for 40 years, people had to battle this. This was assumed to be truth. And now there is impressive, impressive, impressive evidence, a wide range of evidence to prove otherwise. That's amazing. God is kind to his people. He helps us, even through difficulty, to stand strong with the word of God, and then he gives us truth. This enemy came down, this assumption. Not that Kathleen Kenyon was an enemy. She probably was good in her heart and meant well. She was probably speaking truth. But it wasn't truth. Okay? Now, my second point today is because the Bible's true and we all face obstacles, there's nothing that our God can't handle. In the first case, the thing that is the greatest obstacle in our lives is our own sin. And if you know the depth of our rebellion, and the greatest depth is that we ignore God. We live our lives sometimes without acknowledging him, without asking for his guidance, without humbling ourselves before him and say, you know best. But this great obstacle of our sin was conquered too. And there's nothing you could do about it. There's no source of your own power that could make this great wall go down, this rebellion against God, this turning away from him which still lives in me and you. But Jesus broke down the wall. He broke down the wall that separated us from God. He paid for our sins in a way that nobody saw coming. Nobody predicted other than the prophets in their messages knew that Jesus, the Son of God, would come to earth, do mighty miracles to show and prove who he was, and then allow himself to be hung on a cross that a wall that separated us from heaven would be broken down. However, my second point is that, my third point is this. We must believe that there's a promise on the other side of this wall. There is forgiveness of sin. There is good for you. The Bible says anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the promises of Jesus are many. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my, my yoke is easy. He says, the devil came to steal and kill and destroy. 
So anything in your life that is mired or confusing or dark or bitter or painful has its authorship in the pits of hell with the devil. But Jesus said, I have come that you would have life and you would have it to the full or to abundance. Not just a little bit of life, not just a little bit of joy, but a place of fullness. That's what Jesus died to give us. So as we acknowledge that Jesus paid the price into the promised land that we have today, the promise of goodness and mercy, the promise of life like manna every day, fulfilling and nourishing our souls, we also have to express our need for it. I think it's very interesting that when Joshua and Caleb first came back with a good report, they had no thought that there wasn't going to be a battle or a fight. God said to them, I'm going to give it to you. When you finally settle, I'm going to give it to you. There were battles. And I think this speaks of God's way. And I don't fully understand it, but I think a part of this is this. That when you begin to see the promises of God, that there really are promises, that you can be forgiven of your sin, that Jesus really did come and wanted to give you something more than you have today. You have to express a desire for it. Your heart must come to a place of belief that, yes, it's true. He is a rewarder of those. He's a rewarder. He has good things. He wants to provide. He wants to make water from a rock. He wants to give us manna. He doesn't want our clothes to wear out in a sense. And we have to express our desire for that which he wanted to give us. We had to be willing to go to battle for it. We have to be willing to stand up and say, no, that's mine. What I have today is not the fullness of what he died to give me. But I want to fight. I want to pray. I want to press on till I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. There's a battle mentality. Not just he's going to give it to me and it's all okay. There is a fight. And when you begin to secure the promises of God, it's beautiful. They're markers in your life, like stones in the river. I can look back and say, I was faithless, but he met me there. I tell you, when God told us to come to England, he made it very clear. But we had struggles along the way. We had things that set us back. But Claire and I can look back and say, whatever comes, he met us here. He provided for us when it all hope seemed lost at times. There is a fight within you that must rise up that says, I want that which he died to give me. If you've never given Jesus a chance in your life, if you've never said, Jesus, I believe you died for my sin, for you to be forgiven, it requires you to say, I need the forgiveness of my sins. It doesn't matter what my family says. It doesn't matter what my colleague says. It doesn't matter if I look low in other people's eyes. I want that. I want forgiveness of sin. I want the promise of heaven. I want, and I believe that Jesus provides it. Nothing else. So the story of Jericho is a story of overcoming but you can overcome too. I just want to end with this last verse. Romans 8:37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You are a conqueror. Why? Because you feel like it? 
Maybe not. You are because Jesus called you that. It's written in the word. You are a conqueror. There is a conqueror planted inside you. It's part of the seed of the born-again experience that the spirit of God dwells in you, and it wants to rise up. If the spirit of him who lives in you, there's nothing that can stand in your way. It's part of your inheritance that you are a conqueror. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.